All right, well, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the fourth chapter of Ruth as we continue on in this outstanding study. Just uh, been such a blessing to look at this. Uh, Ruth just is so wonderful in the way that it addresses so many fascinating concepts and things which we might not initially recognize it brings such clarity to and helps us to to dig deeper because a lot of the things we look at are like where does that come from that doesn't make any sense in our modern day culture and it's those kind of things that push us deeper in scripture it's wonderful Willard was telling me from his bible reading this morning in Leviticus 2 you know um, grits are not a southern thing Now, before y'all get ready to stone me, and I thought the same thing, go read Leviticus 2, 14 to 16. It talks about grits in there. Really, grits. And, you know, wonderful to recognize this is truly God's food. You know, my wife has loved it forever and ever, and, uh, you know, me as well. Or learning to, I should say. I've not been exposed to it that much, but... These, these little treasures and nuggets in Scripture. And we're going to see some tonight. There's some unique exposure to customs tonight. And uh, a- a- as you turn to Ruth 4, there's something I want to share you, with you that relates to this custom mentioned, particularly to that of footwear. And no, Rusty, I won't pick on you anymore about blowing the shoe off on the freeway. But uh, there's this challenge I have, and let's just go ahead and get it out. I hate stinky feet. Okay, it's out there. All right, I got it off my chest. It just drives me crazy, especially my own. Karen and I were, were early on in our relationship, and we were on this trip together. We'd gone to St. Thomas on vacation, and we were on a very low-budget vacation. We were living with my buddy in this boat that he had built into a houseboat off of the south end of St. Thomas, where he had this windsurfing business. The accommodations were, well, let's just say cozy. Um, When the wind blew and the rain came, you were in it because uh, basically you had kind of curtains around the end of the boat uh, as well as where the privy was out there. And Karen found that out after a long flight down to take a shower to realize that she was uh, closed to the boat but open to the world behind us. And a couple of boatfuls of uh, the local folks there were very pleased And she was very afraid to wonder what in the world was going on when she turned around and realized they were right there. So um, we're at this boat and, and, you know, we decided that we're going to go ahead and get a little bit of a break. So we're going to go over to Puerto Rico. And, uh, you know, again, low-budget vacation, but we had just enough time to get over there for a one-nighter and kind of see Puerto Rico. We'd gone through the day, and we're, in Saint, and we're headed back to the ferry to go to St. Thomas. And as we get there, we see the ferry boat pulling away from the dock. This is a one-time-a-day ferry ride back to St. Thomas. And I start hollering at the captain, who only speaks Italian, and um, my words weren't particularly edifying. And although I couldn't understand his, I'm pretty sure his weren't either, just from the tone. In any case, it didn't make any difference. Off they went. And we're standing on the dock. Well, the the bad part about this is a few minutes earlier as we'd been walking to the dock, I smell something. And I'm like, wow, what is that? And I said, you know, honey, is that your feet? Just a a note to any of you who might be thinking or encouraging others in courting your children, perhaps. That's a bad question to ask. Doesn't doesn't go well. And, um, And I realized it was not, it was my feet. 
and, and these sandals were just old and nasty, and I had it. I said, you know what? We're on our way back. My buddy owns a windsurfing shop. I threw them in the garbage can. Well, then we come around the corner. Here goes the ferry pulling away. Uh, I'm running after it. It's doing no good. And we suddenly realize that we have $10 to our name and somehow got to get through a night to get back to this ferry to use these tickets. And uh, it, it was not a good situation. Um, I, I, we, had to, we walked down to the, uh, the ferry dock, to, the, uh, to the, the ferry office, rather, and, and tried to plead our case. And uh, it, it was amazing the way that that all happened. I, I went several miles through San Juan barefoot before I finally realized, oh yeah, I am barefoot. Where did I throw those shoes? Who knows? They're back there somewhere. And uh, it, it, was, it was just, you know, not a good situation. The, we ran into a lovely woman who did give us some money, actually got us a plane ticket um, with our 10 bucks and went around the office to gain money. And off she sends us back, so I get on the airplane barefoot to go back to St. Thomas. It was a beautiful situation, but the, the moral of the story is don't throw your stinky sandals away because um, you never know how bad you might need them. And although that seems totally remote, and it is uh, kind of a stretch, we'll see that it is fairly applicable in our story tonight because the, the connection shows us a lot about this aspect of sandals. Well, to recap a couple issues, we've been talking about the kinsman redeemer, and this Old Testament concept of, of reviving a family name and property. You remember that the land of Israel was divided by the 12 tribes, and each tribe divided the land into the family members. It was essential that those families each maintained their land. So much so that if they went completely broke and they had to sell their land, that at the Jubilee year, at the 49th year, that land was to be returned so that that family name and heritage would continue. Well, additionally, if the head of the family died, there was provision in the Levitical law for other family members to redeem that land. And there was provision for the redemption of a childless widow. And in this way, both the family's land and the name would be perpetuated. And this is just what's been happening in Ruth, as we know, and we've studied that. But as we consider the, all of these aspects and leading up to this, Ruth had returned with her mother-in-law, Naomi, from Moab. When Elimelech led his family there in a drought, contrary to God's word, and he had died, his two sons had married and died, and Ruth decides to come back, and she issues that, that wonderful expression of her love to her mother-in-law in Ruth 1.16. And then she divinely winds up in Boaz's field. They have an affection for one another, and this would take us through the second chapter. And in the third chapter of Ruth, approaches Boaz in this beautiful picture of humility and honor, that which many have sought to find something wrong with, but in fact is just that, a picture of beauty and honor and an appropriate approach to one another. And, but at the end of this, as she has come and, and as he has offered to redeem her, he warns her that there is yet one closer to him in this situation. 
And that takes us to the fourth chapter where Boaz moves to address this closer relative on this issue. And the man declined the offer and so Boaz is again free to begin his pursuit. And this brings us to our text for tonight. I've titled our text simply this this one word, fulfillment. Fulfillment, because that is the summation of the entire text. It is fulfillment. All we've seen in Ruth is fulfilled tonight. Really, all that has and all that will occur in redemptive history is fulfilled in our text tonight. We've discussed that kinsman redeemer and mentioned how Boaz is the picture of the kinsman redeemer. Well, tonight, Boaz fulfills this role. The faithfulness of Ruth began in Ruth 1.16, again with her, her famous promise of where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you dwell, I will dwell. And where you die, I shall die. And now Naomi's desire to see her family continued is fulfilled tonight. We've seen her go from Mara, from bitter, back to provided for and sweet and to return to her name of lovely well there's tonight there, there's three aspects of our text tonight and and they show us god's redemptive plan and in each of them we see how the redemptive plan of ruth applies to us so there's these three redemptive layers in our text this evening let's look at it in ruth chapter four i'm going to read through the first 12 verses because the context is so connected even though we've already covered verses one through six Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought, the land, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. 
in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Praise the Lord for his word. These three three redemptive layers which achieve God's plan in you. And the first redemptive layer is the redemption of the land in verses 7 to 9. The redemption of the land. Now what we want to notice first about verse 7 is that it is a, a parenthetical break in the discussion. It's like all of a sudden there's this parenthesis thrown into the, this prime spot in the narrative. This is a very unusual condition in, in Hebrew writing and in normal conversation. You wouldn't normally break the flow at what is the climax of the entire book to throw in this parenthesis. But it shows the importance of this discussion. It shows how this aspect of of the legal technicalities is so important to this discussion. Normally, again, this would not happen. Maybe we'd see it after verse 8. Because this is right in the middle of the discussion of the closest relative, of the one who should have been the kinsman redeemer, the one who isn't named, but of course, it would seem natural, would have been named. But as we discussed last week, probably occurred for his protection. But the narrator has this legal information to include, and he wants everyone to realize that this was the typical contractual arrangement in such cases. That's an important piece for us, because again, we look at it and we go, what? Take off a sandal. The reason seems fairly clear to us for one thing the scripture does not address this means by which this deal is to be accomplished if we go back into deuteronomy and we look at the kinsman redeemer passage we see the details of it but we don't see the legal mechanism described so the narrator brings to us a piece of jewish history that is nowhere else found in the scriptures Some commentators feel that this whole concept of removing the scripture is in line with other scripture verses like Genesis 13, 17. In Genesis 13, 17, God tells Abraham to walk the length and the breadth of the land. Or in Deuteronomy 11, 24, where God tells the people that everywhere the sole of their feet touch shall be their possession. Or Joshua 1.3, which restates that same thing. So these commentators see this link between walking and the Lord's provision of everywhere that the, those people that were chosen of God would walk and this exchange of land through the sandal. Another connection exists in Deuteronomy 25.9. And in Deuteronomy 25, 9, there's a direct tie with the kinsman redeemer when a man refuses to redeem a childless widow. Now, this is kind of what's happening here. So this is also an important connection point. 
In Deuteronomy 25.9, when a man doesn't fulfill the role of the kinsman redeemer, which the law requires, then that the elders of the city approach him. And they say, this is your responsibility per the law. And if he still refuses to do that, then the widow is to pull off his sandal and spit in his face and declare, such it shall be done to this man. I think that's giving us a little insight into why the closest relative isn't named. He is doing a very dishonorable thing. He is doing an illegal thing. But Boaz is there to pick up the slack. So there's no reason for it to go to that extent and to, and to be this point of negativity and disgruntlement because we've seen this story just escalating and it continues to do so. Well, all of these seem to have some insight into this context of removing the sandal, but, but none relate to this specific case. And the explanation at the end of verse 7 yet still holds. This was the way a deal was sealed. The removal of the sandal signified forfeiture. And keep in mind, this is not like today. Now, I, I don't know. I see that, you know, when I had the chance to go fishing, I was thinking that um, sandals, you know, would be the flip-flops would be the appropriate wear because in California we wear those for everything. And I think we must have, you know, a box full between the four of us. Here I see it's a little different footwear. But, so, but this is a different time. It wasn't like everyone had five or six pair of sandals. A pair of shoes was a very precious and dear commodity. So to give a, san- give a sandal up obviously meant the whole pair of shoes is shot and, uh, and also, again, is a very significant nonverbal legal communication about this exchange. And that's what we see there in verse 7 with the discussion of the removal of the sandal. And then in verse 8, it returns to the direct discourse. So we pick things back up. Verse 6 has the close relative speaking, and verse 8 comes back in. And the close relative again speaks, and he states the same thing as he did in verse 6. He says, buy it for yourself, thus repeating his inability to complete the transaction. And then he removes his sandal, to seal the arrangement. Now we've mentioned how Boaz is the picture of Christ as the ultimate redeemer. Well, Boaz was indeed Ruth's kinsman redeemer in a very real, physical, and tangible way. Like Boaz, the Lord would never compromise in our redemption. All that Boaz did in the redemption of Ruth was honorable. Furthermore, he now has the sandal which is a a witness to that. He isn't concerned about jeopardizing his inheritance, as was the closest relative. We don't know exactly why this one said that he was concerned about jeopardizing it. We've speculated last week, and you can go back and review some of those points, or we can talk later about that. But Boaz is not concerned about that. His concern is not his inheritance. It is Ruth. Instead, in the same way, uh, we see Christ has made us part of his inheritance. He is concerned most about us. In Ephesians 3, 6, it says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Another great similarity exists here, beloved. Like Boaz, Christ made his plans privately, but he paid the price publicly. And like Boaz, Jesus did what he did because of the love of his bride, you and me. This is a picture of Christ in so many varied facets that we don't even really grasp it until we start digging through how incredible this picture is. And then in verse 9, Boaz again speaks. His words are representative of a legal arrangement. His terms clearly indicate a legal transaction, specifically when he says, you are witnesses today. Boaz has established the transaction and he has verified the testimony and the elders and the people as witnesses. Furthermore, he has the sandal of the close relative to verify that completion. And needless to say, the close relative also has to walk home barefoot. I hope the pavement wasn't as hot as it was in Puerto Rico that day. Well, one final item of attestation exists here, and it is the order of Malon and Chilion's names, and they're reversed. If we go back to chapter 1 and we see their names used, it's always in the opposite order. That's done here because it restates this, this picturesque nature. Malon's name is repeated in verse 10, but it also goes to show that there is nothing in the redemption that is left. There is no piece of this where there is any illegality or any holes in it. Both of the inheritances of the two children of Elimelech are now encompassed. Chilion had no heirs, he had no children, and so Malon now becomes the one whom he is redeeming, and all of Elimelech's kin, so to speak, are now brought forward and are being redeemed. So at the close here of verse 9, we have the redemption of the land complete. One thing you should note here, consider the thoroughness of Boaz's business deal. Even down to the names that he speaks of both of the children. Really, Malon was the one who he was redeeming and and whose land. But he makes certain that every piece is discussed. The thoroughness of of his business deal is so important. He first goes to the close relative. He presents the situation. And when the close relative can't fulfill the redeemer's role, he steps in. He wants to make sure the elders are witnesses and wants to make sure that everyone understands what's going on. Beloved, is this how all of our business deals are? Is this how we go about every element of our day, done with the utmost concern for honor, done in the most public manner? If you were buying or refinancing your house, would it be something that you were willing to share every element of the details of the business deal with the church. If you're buying a new car and you're going to negotiate with the dealer, would all of that negotiation be something you'd be fine if it were put on the big screen and everyone in church could see it? If you were selling used equipment or furniture, is everything done with honor? Are we considering every element? What's this worth? Uh, Am I doing the best by the person who's buying it? Am Am I being a good steward, of course, of the funds? 
or, or, or could there be one of those transactions that's occurred that we might fear that we were on the Ananias and Sapphira side of things and when we came before Peter with the money, it wouldn't go well as they lied about the proceeds of their property in front of Peter and God killed them both on the spot. Beloved, the church does see every business deal because the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, sees every action. He hears every word and he knows every thought. This is a picture for us of how we must conduct our lives. Everything is to be done with the glory of the Lord and in full public disclosure. Well, Boaz has redeemed the land, our first layer of the three redemptive layers which achieve God's plan for you, and we see that pertinent application to our dealings. The second layer is the redemption of the lady, the redemption of the land, and now the redemption of the lady in verse 10, where it says, Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Boaz's speech continues. This is the last time we'll hear from him in the book of Ruth. And his statement in verse 10 is emphatic. The beginning word there, moreover, in almost all of the English translations, shows above everything else, it has, it has huge emphasis. Of everything we've talked about, this is the key point. Moreover, here is the focus. And the focus is Ruth. Ruth is the main goal of the redemption. Yes, the land is included. But it was a necessary element of attaining the goal. The literal Hebrew here would read more like, I have acquired for myself Ruth. This is the, the goal, this is the focus of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, to continue the family name. Now, we've speculated that Ruth may well have been in the audience through this because of the import of the discussion and the way matters occurred in the large city gate that she could very easily have been on the outskirts and watching this go on. And I expect there would be little doubt now if she was in attendance because she would be jumping for joy. She would be so excited about what's happening, beaming with the glow of her love, and it would be an unmistakable visage. It'd be something that lights up this room. You've seen it, haven't you? You've seen that in the eyes of your own husbands or wives. You see a young couple in love, and their faces just glow. You know, they have that silly stare. They can't seem to get their eyes off one another. Well, that's the way we all need to be beloved. That radiating face, and to a lesser degree, I think this is somewhat that same radiance that we probably saw in Moses when he was with the Lord. There's just, there's a glow about you. Well, the rest of verse 10 is Boaz's motivation. And again, it clearly shows that Ruth was the key aspect of the redemption. Boaz now shows why he desired to be the Goel. I acquired for myself Ruth the Moabitess. And why? To be my wife. 
This shows that his motives are are purely personal. And notice that there is nothing wrong with that. God honors those personal motives in our lives which bring him honor. The marriage relationship is a sacred marriage that God ordains. And there is that beauty and that honor that exists in it. And that is the point and the importance of this whole book as it relates to young couples seeking marriage. And let me encourage you, if you have people in your families, children or grandchildren that are considering marriage, drive them back to Ruth. Sit them down and read Ruth with them and say, is your pursuit of marriage in the same honor that is shown in this book? Is God exalting every facet? Are you willing to bring it all before the Lord? I mean, when we think of Ruth's approach, think of her coming back with Naomi. Think about her going out to glean. Is this the attitude uh, of your future wife? Is she willing to go out and do whatever it takes because she has that kind of commitment to the Lord and to her family? And and if things don't go well, is she ready to do that? Is she ready to to do whatever her mother-in-law tells her? Go out in the middle of the night at what seems like a, a pretty precarious plan? But to do it because that's what would bring honor to her mother-in-law? Man, this is, this is a really important book for young people to make sure they're seeking the Lord's face and being guided by Him. Well, Boaz indicates three other factors that he desires to do here in verse 10. First, he seeks to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. This shows Boaz's desire to bring up children on the ground of the inheritance of the deceased. Second, he does not want the name of the deceased to be cut off. This phrase, cut off in the Hebrew, is the same as losing one's honor. There's a, a vital element at stake here. This idea of honor is implicit throughout the text. And he wants to make sure it's being carried forward. And third, he wants to make sure that the name of the deceased is not removed from the town. Now, they'll continue to have a a representation in the city gate. The family name will remain in the assemblies of the elders and of the town. And and this name of Elimelech will go forward. Boaz closes his speech the way that he began. You are witnesses today. You have seen this thing, and you are to bear witness to the same. The redemption of the land, the redemption of the lady, which shows honor in absolutely every facet. It shows a God-honoring relationship and the vital nature of every relationship being one which is carried forward in a manner that God would be pleased by. So the redemption of the land and the lady in our third level is the redemption of the legacy. The redemption of the legacy. Clearly, it's been God's plan to redeem the land and the lady. The events which have led up to this could not have occurred otherwise. Indeed, they would not have occurred were it not for God's providential hand. The Lord is so perfectly and beautifully guiding all of this, it's unmistakable to see the sovereignty of God throughout this book. But at this point comes most dramatically as we consider the redemption of a legacy in verses 11 to 12, where it says, All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. 
May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now we hear the people speak. They first confirm Boaz's command that they are indeed witnesses, and their first proclamation is for progeny. They pray that Ruth will bear children, they, that she would be fruitful. Children are an incredible blessing, and especially so in the nation of Israel, because they continued the proliferation of the nation and of the land, no different than it does today. One of the greatest offenses we see in some of the the aspects of the homosexual movement is the eradication of naturally born children. Psalm 127, 3 to 5 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed. When they speak with their enemies in the gate. What a a delight it is. And how much we know of that blessing of children. And those of you that have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. What a delight they are. What an encouragement to our eyes and our minds. It is that continuation. It is that opportunity for the proliferation, not just of a family name, but a proliferation of the gospel. A proliferation of those that would be faithful, that you all can be witnesses and testimony to, to say, yes, I have sought to serve the Lord imperfectly, of course. But follow, as Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Children are this gorgeous gift from God, and uh, unfortunately, our world doesn't see this. I have been, uh, since the time the Lord has blessed me to come to know Him, a huge supporter of crisis pregnancy centers uh, in Idaho, in California. I'm excited about our connectivity to the one here in Mobile. And yet it's so interesting to understand how critical the situation is in our world. Over 50 million murdered children in the last 30 years. One nurse said with response to how misled our world is, Uh, She said, in one part of our hospital, we fight day and night to keep babies alive, while in another part, we're murdering them. What would God say? Well, these people knew the value of children and the future hope of bearing children. They, interestingly, many of them thought, and there's some in some of their extra-biblical writings, they thought that more children would decrease the time until the coming of Messiah. Now, um, obviously, that's a little theologically askew, but it's certainly got the right spiritual attitude. You know, if, if the Lord's going to come sooner with a few more kids, then, you know, maybe it's time to start getting right back after that. We can all have a couple more. No amens? Come on. Well, the, na- the, the issue of children and their wonderful blessing is so clear to us. And the names of the people that they use here are significant as well as we consider this redemption of the legacy. Leah and Rachel. 
These are the mothers of the leading tribes and nations of Israel. If we went back to Genesis 29, 30, and 35, they show this. They show that these are the two women by which, uh, amazingly, in which we might say in a rather contorted way, God used to bring about the nation of Israel. Uh, Of course, also with their, their maidens. The word Ephrathah here is also significant. The word itself means fruitful, but it has another meaning. Oftentimes in the scripture, Ephrathah is used to relate to the nation of Israel. But the people wanted Ruth to be fruitful, and so using Ephrathah or fruitful would bring honor to their little town if there would be more of this fruitful woman, Ruth. This was the town, by the way, in which Ephrathah, in which Rachel was buried in Genesis 35, 19. But what was more important was Bethlehem. Let me read you a few verses that you're very familiar with from Micah chapter 5. Micah 5 and verse 2 to begin with. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And then skipping ahead to verse 5 of Micah 5. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Beloved, this is the legacy. This is the ultimate plan of redemption which would come through Bethlehem Ephrathah. These these three layers of redemption are so beautifully intertwined here. But where do you come in? Well, right here. Right here in the legacy, in the, the redemption of the legacy. Because, beloved, this is the formal beginning of the line of Christ. When I mentioned that all of redemptive history spawned forward from here, this is the pinnacle of redemptive history. Because if we go back to the lineages in Matthew and in Luke of the Lord from Mary and Joseph's side, they come back to Boaz and to Ruth. And this is where the the point begins. When we go back, we we move kind of nebulously back through to this point. We would not know anything special of Salmon or of the previous ones all the way back to Judah, with the exception of Israel's proclamation of Judah being the one from whose feet the scepter would not depart, the lion of Judah. But even in that, there's some ambiguity. But now there is clarity. It is from this point forward, launching all the way to the birth of Christ, that we see the lineage clearly designated. Both Joseph and Mary come from the opposite sides of this lineage and back to the great-grandchild of Boaz and Ruth. This becomes your redemption. Your lineage goes back to David and Boaz and Ruth. And of course, not your blood lineage, but something so much more important. This is where our eternal life lies. This is the picture that's been painted for Israel from the beginning of time. Since the time of the judges, almost immediately after entering the land. Beloved, the sandal that has passed assured God's earthly plan for eternity. 
And as surely as Boaz held that sandal, for those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, you too hold that confirmation, that deal that is sealed, that is done and is assured as anything ever accomplished. Doubtlessly stinky, doubtlessly dirty, but I assure you, never discarded by Boaz. God has brought his perfect plan to fruition through some of the most unique circumstances. But doesn't that encourage you? No matter our background, God is in charge. Here we see Ruth brought forward from the the most despised of the nation of Israel. And she becomes the one. No matter the depravity of Elimelech and all of his actions, it takes us back to the end of Genesis. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so also it is in our lives. So also it was even as we discuss our prayer request. We can't understand how cancers and horrific circumstances in, in the lives of our beloved ones would have a positive effect. But as surely as God is working through the, the errors and the horrors of Elimelech and his uh, abandonment of God, he is working in our lives. Nothing can thwart the plans of the Almighty God. Amen? And, and as we move towards this, this conclusion and culmination of this, the most praiseworthy note that we can give is to recognize God's sovereignty, to recognize His love that has been through this, and to recognize that as we seek to honor God, He will honor us if we will be but faithful. Because we know our God is always faithful, and even when we are faithless, he yet still, as 2 Timothy 2.11 proclaims, shows himself to be mighty and faithful. Pray that this is just a great encouragement and consideration about your walk, about every element of your lives, and that we would just recognize the amazing beauty of four small chapters tucked in between Judges and 1 Samuel and use them because your family, your children, your grandchildren... They desperately need to understand the message that's brought forth in this book. Well, we'll come back together next week and we'll conclude Ruth and then uh, move on to Ezekiel following that. So I encourage you to start doing your reading in that wonderful prophetic text. And uh, we'll look forward to moving into those, that conclusion and onward.